1 Samuel chapter 10, that's where we'll be this morning as we continue marching on through 1 Samuel. Doing a chapter and a half again, but these chapters are a little shorter than the last time we did a chapter and a half. Uh, One of my favorite poems one I'm sure I've quoted from the pulpit before, is William Cooper's God Moves in in a Mysterious Way. And the first line is the most famous line. It says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And a poem goes on for several more lines, but the the driving idea behind it is that while life may be full of storms and trials, we can always trust that our sovereign God is at work. And that can be a hard thing to remember in times of trial and in times of storm when things don't seem to be going our way. But as Charles Spurgeon later on put it, when we cannot trace his hand, when we cannot trace God's hand, can't see what he's doing, We must trust his heart. Hard times come, but even then we can trust that God is working all things together for good, Paul says in Romans 8, to those who love him and those are called according to his purpose. He's working all things together for their good. But are we only in spiritual danger when it seems that we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? I don't think so. There there are many other times when we might be tempted to doubt God or more dangerous still to forget him altogether. Perhaps the most dangerous times for us are when things seem to be going pretty well. We look at the circumstances, we see good things happening for us, and we assume things are going my way, I must be doing something right. But is that necessarily true? Is it accurate? I think this text will force us to question that. We're going to divide what we look at here into three portions this morning, and we'll begin by looking at the second half of chapter 10. We'll we'll pick up in verse 17, where God gives the people their king. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 27 says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel took the 
told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So if you remember the last time we were in 1 Samuel, we, we met a young man named Saul who had gone in search of, of his donkeys, his father's donkeys. And he and his servant strike out, and, and they're searching for their beasts of burden, and, and they don't find them. They, they, are, they, they strike out on a mission, and they strike out on that mission. They, they fail. But in the process, they come to a city where the man of God, Samuel the prophet, is staying. And, and this is not long after the time frame of chapter 8, when the people have demanded of Samuel that he appoint for them a king. They want a king to rule them. And though Samuel is reluctant to give them a king, he, he doesn't like it. It feels like a personal rejection, and he sees that it's also a rejection of God. God instructs Samuel to obey the voice of the people. What Saul doesn't know as he heads into the city to ask the prophet if he can help with their lost donkeys, is that the man of God is waiting for him. Saul is going to be anointed by Samuel as the prince over God's people, as the, as the new king. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 10. After this, Saul returns home, and he, he plays his cards pretty close to the vest. He he experiences some interesting side effects of being filled by the Spirit. He starts prophesying, and the people around are going, is Saul also among the prophets? This is a weird deal. But, but even though this great transformation has come over him, he doesn't tell his uncle, who asks, what did Samuel tell you? He says, well, he told us the donkeys were found. He doesn't say anything about Samuel anointing him with oil, telling him he's going to be king. He doesn't tell him any of that. He just, he just tells him that the donkey troubles are gone. But now the time for odd prophetic events, the time for hidden anointings and whispers of kingship, that time is over. Samuel is gathering all of the people together, and they're going to use this super sophisticated method of casting lots as the way to figure out who should be the head man, who should be the king. Who's going to be the king? Let's roll the dice. Before we get there, we should stop and scratch our heads first, though. Verses 17 or 18 and 19 are, are interesting. Samuel has brought the people together for the express purpose of crowning a king over them. But does he gather them together and talk about, hey, it's so great to have you all here. We've got this joyous occasion, this transition to a new era in Israel's life. No. He gathers them together, and in verses 18 and 19, he rebukes them once again for their stubborn desire to have a human figurehead. 18 and 19, he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. I'm was, I was just thinking as I, as I read that, it's like 
that there's got to be almost a terrifying experience for the people after Samuel once again rebukes them and, and he's he's speaking for God here and saying I have done all this good thing all these good things for you I've saved you over and over again and you've rejected me now line up it's, it's like if the kids really do something bad I'm like come stand here so I can talk to you uh, that's just how it feels as I read that God has delivered this people time and time again. And yet, instead of trusting in God's loving rule, we remember from chapter 8, verse 20, that, that the people desire a king so that they can be like all the nations. They reject their peculiar relationship with God, the protection that only he can provide in order to have a strong man who will defend them. As we discussed when we were in chapter 8, there's that temptation is not unique to the people of Israel. Even as 21st century Christians, there's a, a strong pull towards pragmatism in how we view earthly powers. The big successful businesses have hard-driving, tough-nosed, rule-defying leaders. That's how they succeed in the world. Well, if we want our church to succeed, then we'll have to find leaders that fit the mold of that extreme drivenness and it factor. That's how a lot of churches choose their leaders. The world thinks all power runs through politics, and people tie all their hopes for a, a nation into who holds political office at a given moment. And the worst possible thing is for the other side, for the enemy, to win. So as Christians, we should check our morality at the door and just look for someone to defend us, right? In relationships, we are told to look out for number one, to follow your heart, and to always be attuned to what's best for you. So we should worship our own desires and seek our own fulfillment at all costs, regardless of what it does to the other people, right? The allure of the world, the desire to do things the way everyone else is doing them, is incredibly dangerous. No one's free from that temptation. The, the way of the dragon, though, the way of Satan, stands in stark contrast to the way of the Lamb of God. And Samuel is reminding of the people of this. Though, though God will give them their desire, what they are about to receive is the fruit of their sinful wishes and desires. And we ought to keep that in mind as the narrative moves forward. Samuel's words might seem really harsh. But as Dale Ralph Davis notes in his commentary, Israel's God may love us too much to be nice. He might love us too much to be nice. So we come to the roll of the dice in verse 20. As we come to verse 20, the people have convened. And here we find them casting lots to determine who will be the king. Casting lots is not an unusual way in scripture of determining what the will of God is. And I should probably define it because I keep using rolling the dice as a stand-in phrase for, for casting lots. And that's not exactly accurate. It's pretty close, though. They wouldn't have had perfectly uniform six-sided dice with the little black dots on there like we have. What they would have done, though, is they would have had a variety of identifiable objects in, in a small container or jar, like a Yahtzee cup <laughs> is kind of what you could picture. And they would roll them up and dump them out. And based on how they laid out when you dumped them, that was how you determined what the will of God was. So it's not technically rolling the dice, but it's essentially the same idea. And in Leviticus 16, we see it used in the sacrificial system. If you've got two goats here and we're determining which one are we going to sacrifice and which one is cast out as the scapegoat to carry away the sins of the people, well, we cast lots to decide. 
In Numbers 26, we see casting lots being used to determine the, the dividing up of territory. Uh, even in the New Testament, when, when Judas has killed himself and the apostles are looking to replace, uh, replace him in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, they cast lots to decide between two people. And this was all done with the understanding, as communicated in Proverbs 16.33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Even, even the rolling of the proverbial Yahtzee dice is under God's controlling rule. Which doesn't make me feel very good when I play Yahtzee, because one of the kids usually creams me. Are these... Are these instances given to us as a, as a model for how we ought to make decisions in our day? Probably not. We probably don't need to make decisions based on the roll of the dice. But the point of the passage is to simply drive home this point. God is the one giving them the king. He is the one in control of every step of the process. Remember that they're rolling the dice after God has already told Samuel to anoint Saul. Samuel has anointed Saul as king. And yet when he brings the people together, he doesn't say, hey, God already told me who the king was. Let's just go find him. They still go through this whole process where they're rolling, rolling, rolling. And it still comes down to the man God had chosen. Samuel apparently is completely confident that the will of the Lord will be made clear through the roll of the dice. But when the lot falls to Saul, he's nowhere to be found. He, he's He's disappeared. And again, the people have to rely on God to get this king that they want to replace God as their king. They have to pray. The, verse 21, he brought the tribe of the Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they saw him, he could not be found, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself in the baggage. Even here, when they're trying to get this human ruler, they have to turn to God for help because they can't do it on their own. I wonder why Saul is hiding in the luggage. What are, what are we supposed to make of this? Some commentators think it points to, Paul, or to Saul's humility, uh, that we ought to commend him for not wanting to be the king. He's, he's just here tucked away trying to be inconspicuous. Honestly, I'm pretty skeptical of that view. Uh, Saul was already chosen by God. He's, he's had the prophet, the one who speaks for God, come to him and say, you are going to be the king. And God confirmed all this to him through a series of miraculous events that you see earlier in chapter 10 to the point where Saul himself has the Spirit of God rush upon him and he's prophesying. But instead of humbly accepting the role that God gives him, he's hiding in the luggage. He's tucked away trying to, to avoid doing what God has given him to do. That, that, that might look like humility on a human level, but it's actually pride to think that you know better than God. He, it's like God's given him a job to do, and sometimes Owen will hide on his bed, and he'll like pull his covers up over him to think I can't see him. 
which sometimes if he has enough stuffed animals on his bed, I can't actually see him. <laughs> it just kind of disappears. But but this is kind of what Saul's doing. Like maybe if I just tuck in here with the luggage, they won't see me. Really, Saul? That that doesn't speak of humility. That again, that speaks of a pride that sees itself as knowing better than God what you're fit to do. And and we can fall into that same pride. Tell that person about Jesus. Well, I I don't know how. Maybe. And maybe I'd look like a hypocrite because, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner too. God isn't waiting for you to be qualified for the tasks that he gives you. He just wants you to obey. Saul should have been ready to obey. But when they do find him and bring him forward, the people are excited about what they see. He looks the part. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And from chapter 9, verse 2, we remember that there was not a man among the people of Israel who was more handsome than he. There is no question that this is what any group of people is naturally seeking for. We want the handsome, tall guy to be the boss. Because everybody can look up to him and be like, wow, isn't he impressive? So we read in verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! This chapter closes in verse 25 and following with Samuel telling the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And that wording is important. It's the duties of the kingship, or some translations say of the kingdom, the the manner of the kingdom. And that's a contrast between here and chapter 8. In chapter 8, Samuel warns the people of the ways of kings, the ways that kings naturally end up behaving. But here he spells out what their actual rights and duties are. I imagine probably that at least in part this is referring to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 17. I think we've got time. I'm going to turn there and read it. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14 says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Did you hear that wording? That's exactly the wording that the people use. God's prophesying that hundreds of years in advance. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that his heart may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God tells the people there in Deuteronomy that that the kingship is supposed to be governed by the word of God. If you're going to be the king, you need to write down a copy of the first five books of the Bible and read it every day. 
<laughs> That's what he wanted them to do, to, to keep themselves centered on, okay, who is God? I am not. I'm just a king. I'm just God's servant. I'm just a servant of the people. I'm not lifted up above them. Doesn't seem Saul actually does this. David and Solomon don't obey what we read there in Deuteronomy. None of the kings of Israel do. But after this charge that Samuel gives, everyone is sent home, which seems an odd thing, right? If we just crowned a king and now everybody just go home, including you, Saul, go home to Gibeah. But remember, like this is the first time they've ever had a king. They don't have they don't have a capital. There's no palace for him to go sit on the throne in. So he just goes back to working in the field. Saul has has no army to lead. He doesn't have anything. So just like everyone else, he heads home. And it is interesting here. Uh, we're going to spend a ton of time with this, but we'll notice it again later. There are some skeptics in verse 27, some worthless fellows, it calls them, who question the choice of Saul. They say, how can this man save us? And they refuse to bring him any gift but here, and this is to Saul's credit, he does not respond to them. He ignores their insult. And we'll hear from them again. Well, not from them, but we'll hear about them again. But where does the story go from here? There, there's a king, but where's his kingdom? Does, does he actually do anything? And that's going to take us into chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves over to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. They mustered, when they, he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And on the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So as we come into chapter 11... You, we find Nahash the Ammonite causing a lot of trouble for the people of Israel. And, and it seems to almost come out of the blue. Because as we read, like from verse 27 of chapter 10 to chapter 11, verse 1, is like this huge break in action and shift. It's interesting, though, there are some ancient manuscripts that include uh, additional material at the end of verse 27 that bridges the gap. 
And based on the, the fact that even in the time of, of Jesus, this material was known, don't know if it's original to the text, but it probably does give us some historical background on what was happening. Uh, I think the New Revised Standard has actually inserts it here at the end of verse 27. So like I said, we don't know whether this is original to the text or not, but I'll just read it here because it does help us understand maybe what's going on. It says, Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh-Gilead. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, they are on the, let me see if I'm looking at you, the east side of the, of the Jordan River. And, and so up in the northern part of that region, there would be Jabesh-Gilead. And so the Ammonites are coming from the south, and they're gouging out people's eyes as they go. And they chase these 7,000 men up into Jabesh-Gilead. And those guys are holed up in the city, waiting, waiting to, to get taken over and have their eyes gouged out too. And they try to make a peace deal with him and say, okay, now Nahash, we will just turn ourselves over. We won't fight. And he says, ah, only if I get to gouge your eyes out too. And, and so they say, okay, how about give us a week? Which you might think, if he's chased them this far, why would he give them any time? But it seems the assumption is, Nobody's going to come. Nobody's going to save them. This is a disorganized band of loosely affiliated tribes. No one's going to save these people. And so if I give them a week and then they surrender, well, I've saved myself the time and effort of whoever might get killed in my army if I attack them. So they send messengers, and, and those messengers go across the river and then down to Gibeah, where Saul is. And they reach Saul's hometown, but he's not there. He's, he's out in the field plowing with the oxen, and when he hears the news in verse 6, we see a phrase that's repeated from chapter 10, verse 10, where the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. But this time, instead of the Spirit of God causing Saul to join the prophets, it kindles his anger. God, God rushes upon Saul, and Saul gets super angry, takes the oxen, chops them up, and sends them out as a message to the people of Israel and says, you get behind me and Samuel, and we're going to go save those guys. And if you don't come with us, we're going to chop your oxen up too. It's, it's pretty forceful. And verse 7 tells us that then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And Saul gathers them together at Bezek, north of his hometown of Gibeah. So it would be like right up across the river from Jabesh-Gilead. And he's got 300,000 men of Israel, 30,000 men of Judah, and they send messengers over to, over to Jabesh-Gilead and promises them salvation by noon the next day. As we come to verse 11, we find that the promise comes true. Saul brings this massive army across the Jordan, splits them into three companies, they attack the camp of the Ammonites, and, and they destroy them. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them left together. They have so thoroughly annihilated them that no two Ammonites got away together. If, if you got away, it was by yourself scampering away. So the people's plan to put a king over them to save them worked, right? 
Give us a king so that he might go before us and fight our battles, chapter 8, verse 20. That's what the people are asking for. And here Saul has done just that. He rescued them. He fought their battle, and he saved them. So the people were right, and God was wrong, right? Well, that works if you just conveniently forget all the times God delivered them without a human king. God was not dependent upon this king to save his people. And when the people focus on the king, they might still get the immediate deliverance that they're seeking. They might. But they lose sight of the true source of salvation, which brings us to the end of chapter 11, verses 12 to 15. The people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So here at the end of this first military victory for Saul, the people are both overjoyed and incensed. They're overjoyed by the result of the battle, and they're incensed that there were ever people who questioned Saul. Who are they? Where are they? They want to know. let's, Let's kill them. And again, we should commend Saul here because he responds rightly to this cry for vengeance. Verse 13 reads, Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul locates the source of the victory correctly, the Lord, and he responds rightly to the bloodlust by shutting it down. Why bring pain upon the people of God when he's just saved us? And it reminds us of Paul's words in Romans 12, beginning in verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in chapter 11, Saul is the great hero. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and delivers a great military victory. And and deliver it, he does. The people are overjoyed, as we see in verses 14 and 15. Overjoyed to the point where they're renewing the kingdom. It's as if God picked Saul the first time, and now the people are saying, let's crown him again. They're ecstatic over the state of things in their nation. They are so excited. But even the reference here to the place where they go, where Samuel takes them to Gilgal, is ominous. Our passage opened with Samuel warning the people that their desire for a king was the result of their rejection of God. And here, when things can't seem to get any better, we read of sacrifices at Gilgal, which when we come to chapter 13, we're going to find are part of Saul's massive early failures was when he decides to, to offer sacrifices at Gilgal. I think the author of 1 Samuel wants us to look beneath the surface of these events. He wants us to see that regardless of what is happening in terms of military victories and coronation ceremonies, 
God is most concerned with where the hearts of his people are and where they're looking for their hope. Where are you looking for hope this morning? Perhaps you're looking to a human ruler, someone who can unite us as a nation. Perhaps you're, as we come into the holiday season, you're looking for hope and happiness in having friends and family around, which might be a little tougher this year. Perhaps you're looking to a relationship you have or want to have and hoping that person will make you whole and take away the loneliness. The danger in these things, or many other places we look for happiness, is that is not just that they will fail us. Fail us, they will. The, in the end, they all do. Politicians actually wield far less power than we think. Families are full of disappointment, and the best of human relationships are full of letdown and eventually end. They all fail. But all of those things also have the potentially to be potential to be incredibly satisfying. The politician might score some points that we really like. There, there's an immense amount of joy to sit around the table with family and friends and have great laughs. And there's nothing like having a spouse or a close friend with whom you can share your deepest self. And it's in all of these legitimate joys that the things of earth can actually pose the most danger to us. Because to, to borrow a phrase, we can take good things and treat them like ultimate things. It's easy in life's joys to misdirect our worship and to focus on temporary circumstances and fail to acknowledge God as the one from whom all blessings flow. It's easy to miss our spiritual need for a savior because things in this life feel just fine. So as we come to Thanksgiving this week, do rejoice in all that God has given. Be thankful for all his benefits, but do not let your hope rest on the gifts. Handsome kings, military victories, successful political protests, they're all sinking sand. Christ, who the one who came and died, who satisfied God's wrath for us, who rose and promises life to all who trust in him, he is the only king who won't fail us. He is the only man worth putting our hope in. All authority in heaven and on earth are his. Let's trust him. Would you pray? Father God, we